This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. But tomorrow morning, I can do 7.30, This is Vinny DeQuattro. He runs Vinny D's, a barbershop in Providence. Yeah, I can do 12.30, 1.30. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow, 12.30. Okay. As you can probably tell, Vinny's Italian. His shop is in Federal Hill. We're here to talk to him about the good old days, when mob boss Raymond Patriarca ran the neighborhood. And because Mark needs a haircut. Raymond used to get his haircut here, huh? Uh, Oh, yeah, once in a while, yes. (laughs) And the sun used to come away once in a while. Tell me about Federal Hill. You moved to Federal Hill how long ago? Uh, 1975. Federal Hill used to be awful Italian people. Yeah. Sad, but years ago when uh, Remo used to be alive, he used to be more controlled, more bad. Since Remo died, he lost controls. There's a photo hanging on the wall. Vinny is a younger man with a gold medal around his neck. Also in the photo is another guy who we recognize. Is this the award-winning haircut? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, tell the story about the gold medal, how you won the gold medal. <laughs> I won the gold medal. I take a contest, I take a model, and I cut a ass on a stage. And my, and my model is to be Jerry Tillinghast. Yeah, that Jerry Tillinghast. Mob enforcer, Vietnam veteran, environmental inspector, and hair model. Vinny's barbershop was right up the street from the lounge. So three times a week, I would go get my beard trimmed. He said one day, he says, uh, we've got a contest going. He says, uh, once you be the model. I'm looking at the model. I said, what the fuck? You know, gay shit, you know what I mean? But I says, what do you mean? He said, yeah, model, cut your hair and, you know. I said, really? He said, yeah. So Jerry and Vinny drove the 50 miles north to the contest in Boston. At the contest, there were 30 barbers, each with their own hair models. The part that he didn't tell me, he says, we're going to have to sit still now. You can't move for a few hours. I said, what? And I says, all right, I think I got this. I did. Which I did. I was surprised. I cut his hand. I waited to 10 o'clock but to wait for the prize. I said, Jerry, people don't have no chance. I don't think. But wait, wait, wait. They call it the third prize. They call it the second prize. I said, Jerry, let's go home because it's... But then at the call of mine, the first prize, and then I'm so happy. Vinny told us another story about how one day, Jerry came in with a friend, a friend named George Basmagian. Vinny gave them both a haircut, they chatted, and then, Vinny said, the next morning, 
he heard on the radio that George Basmajian was found dead, his body riddled with bullets. He told me that the night that... Uh, you want the sign? Yeah. And if, look, if you, if, you, if you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. But he told me the night that Basmajian was killed, you guys got your hair cut. And that you guys were there together and... Yeah. Yeah. He was your friend. Yes, he was. A lot of people were my friends that, that had passed away suddenly. But in the case of this friend, Rhode Island State Police say that Jerry caused his passing. That not long after that haircut, Jerry Tillinghast murdered George Basmajian. When we last left Jerry, he'd just beaten a rap in the bonded vault heist. On today's episode, The Code, that forced Jerry to make a choice between his organized crime family and his actual family. I'm Mark Smerling. And I'm Zach Stewart-Pontier. Welcome to Crime Town. I'm looking over, so where the fuck's my brother? Harold. So I go out back, he's got a shotgun in his fucking, his eyes are as big as yo-yos and his fucking face is pale. I said, give me that fucking thing. Let's get the fuck out of here. Organized crime is given too much credit. They're merchants of fear, and if you succumb to their fear, they own you. I never asked Mr. Tilling asked what happened. I didn't want to know. It didn't matter to me. I don't care. You follow me? Why'd you do that? It was my brother, because he would have got hurt. Because I know whatever it was that we're going to do, and I'm not going to go into it, he didn't have it. He wasn't that made up like that. Worst decision I've ever made in my life. What are you going to do? It's November 30th, 1978, when state police detective Vincent Vespia is tailing George Basmajian the night he's murdered. We were following Basmajian at the time he was killed. We think that they're going to pull a job. We didn't think it was going to be a hit. You met Vespia in episode one. He was a friend of Buddy Cianci's. According to court documents, the night of November 30th, Vespia and the rest of the surveillance team follow Basmajian to Michael's Lounge, a nightclub on the edge of Federal Hill. Also there is Jerry Tillinghast. Jerry's wearing a dark jacket with gold lettering on the back that reads Brass Rail, the name of a strip club. At 721, Vespia watches Jerry make a call from a phone booth. For a while, Jerry paces on the sidewalk in front of Michael's lounge. Back and forth, back and forth. A couple minutes later, Jerry and Basmajian leave the lounge and get into Basmajian's car. Vespia follows them. He tracks them to a bowling alley where they switch into a different car, a stolen 1974 yellow Mercury. It's almost 9 p.m. I was behind the car. It was Basmajian in the back seat and two selling hats in the front seat. Harold. Harold. And Jerry. And uh, Jerry. Jerry was driving the car. It was a stolen car. 
Harold had stolen it earlier. You remember Jerry's older brother, Harold, from episode two. He was the one standing behind the Peter Pan diner holding a shotgun the night that Mousy Rotondo was killed. Jerry made a choice that night. He took the shotgun from Harold, saving his brother from doing something he might regret. But now, Vespia saw the two of them in the stolen Mercury with George Basmagian. And uh, I start following them. I'm all alone. Yeah, but if you have a car, I'm going 22 homes, then. I got the CR-122 up here. I'm calling for some help. I got him, you know, uh, we're here. You know, we're heading this way, we're on this road. So, I clearly see three people in the car. But I don't want to be made, and I'm, you know, doing all my maneuvers not to, not to get made. So we get to an intersection of near the airport, and I, you know, I'm three or four car lengths back. For a moment, as the Mercury turns a corner, it disappears behind a fence, just for a moment. But then, Vespia catches sight of it again, and he notices that something's changed. Now I'm looking in the car, and I only see two people, two Tilling House brothers in the front seat. So I said, oh, shit, they, they got, how did he get out of the car? I mean, I'm talking to myself. Hey, you know, you know we're, we came off in 85, we're on an exit ramp. Where is, what, where is he? Vespia pulls back, worried about being made. He loses sight of the car. Then he begins to crisscross the area, trying to find it again. It's 9.20 p.m. So I spot the car. The tilting hats are gone. The Mercury sits abandoned in a parking lot near the airport. Vespia gets out of his unmarked car and walks across the lot. The car is steaming up on the inside, you know? Open the car door, Basmajan's in the back seat with nine bullet holes in him. I didn't count them at the time, but it turned out to be nine bullet holes. So he's dead. Now I know why I didn't see him, you know? So I... I... The surveillance team convenes at the crime scene. Blood is still gushing from a huge wound in Basmajian's head. The medical examiner later concluded that Basmajian had been shot nine times. All nine shots were fired from the passenger seat from the same 38 caliber revolver. Think about this gruesome detail. 38 caliber revolvers only hold five or six bullets, which means the gunman fired three times into Basmajian's torso reloaded, and then shot him six times in the face. Detective Vespia and an FBI agent go looking for the Tillinghast brothers and find them back at Michael's Lounge, where they started the night. Vespia gets there around 9.55. He walks in and sees Jerry sitting at a table in the back. Well, we were sitting in the Michael's Lounge talking. I was in and out like every 15, 20 minutes, or whatever the case might have been. And in comes uh, Vinny Vespia and an FBI guy. Uh, they come right over to me, push the table over and all that. And they told me, says, Jerry, get up, you're under arrest. I said, for what? So uh, I just went in there, threw the tables away, just grabbed onto them, you know, put them against the wall. 
arrested him for murder. You know, as luck would have it, the jackets that Jerry had was was splattered with blood. And whose blood was it? Basmations. It was a slam dunk. Vespius saw Jerry and Harold with Basmasian in a stolen car. He followed them and found Basmasian's bullet-ridden body. And to make things even more certain, he found Basmasian's blood on Jerry's jacket. But Jerry said he was innocent. He and George Basmasian were friends. And you and George were friends at some level. You, you yes, were, we were. Yeah, what was yeah. he like? Well, George, uh, he was a tough kid. Yeah. Tough kid. We'd go out, we'd have a few drinks, we'd gotten a lot of fights together. <laughs> so who was George Basmasian? Well, he was an outsider, an Armenian, hanging out with all these Italian and Irish wise guys, trying to prove his toughness. But he wanted to be big time, like Jerry. He liked to be around high-profile people, yeah. you know. Uh, he had a, a dream to, a self-dream to expire to that, you know. I used to tell him it's not all what it's cracked up to be, brother, yeah. <laughs> you know. He had a beautiful wife and daughter and family. I, I felt really bad for them when it all went down. Why was Basmasian murdered? According to police, it was all about the mob's code, a code that demanded loyalty above everything else, a code that required Jerry to kill his friend. Jerry and Basmasian were suspects in several mob hits. A drug smuggler thrown out the 23rd story window of a hotel in Midtown Manhattan. A dealer strangled with piano wire and stuffed into a sleeping bag in Massachusetts. And Basmasian liked to brag, run his mouth, According to the code, people who talk too much have to go. It's a code that Jerry still lives by. He won't say if he was in the Mercury that night, but he will talk about what happened after his arrest. You see, outside Michael's lounge, his brother Harold was arrested too. They took me outside. And... Vinny Vespi says, no, wait a minute, we need one more. My brother opened the door, stuck his head out, said, where are you taking my brother? I said, take him too. And that's how Harold got arrested. Why did he take your brother? Because he said we needed one more. He thought that my brother was with us in the car. So he said, take him too. He didn't come in and say, we're looking for Harold and Jerry. You know what I'm saying? Here's the thing. A lot of people in Michael's lounge that night said Harold had never left the bar, that he spent the whole evening there, drinking, eating pizza, and watching Mork and Mindy. One of those people happened to be Paul DeMeo, Jerry's longtime lawyer, whose office was just down the block from Michael's. Uh, November 30th, 1978. I walked down the street, a place called Michael's Lounge, and I see Jerry's uh, car out in front. So I walk in, hey, where's Jerry? Harold goes, he was just here. All right, so I sit down, Michael, me, and, and Harold sitting there. According to DeMeo, he was with Harold at Michael's lounge the entire evening. He says there's no way Harold could have been involved in Basmasian's murder. Now, you might expect him to say that about Jerry, his longtime client, but that's not what he's saying. 
He's only talking about Harold. Sometime after nine, Jerry sits down. My back was to the door, and I do not know if he was in the place. He probably wasn't. It was pretty small. Should be able to see him. And sat down next to us. Maybe ten minutes after that, in comes Vinnie Vespia and Phil Riley, FBI guy. And they grab Jerry. So I'm not going to get involved in this. What is this about? The murder. You know, I stay away from that kind of stuff. You know, okay, fine. Do what you got to do. And Harold is always nosy. And he's sitting there saying, I want to go find out what's happened. Sit down, Harold. Sit there. Do not get up. Well, what does he do? He gets up. I find out the time of the murders are left at night. Harold was not there. Absolutely not there. And I'm not going to lie to anybody. Certainly in a murder, when it comes to my license and what I do for a living, he was not there. I don't know who it was. I don't even know if Jerry was there, but the evidence seemed to be pretty strong that he was. Jerry wouldn't take Harold on a jaywalking expedition, never mind a murder. Not that Jerry would commit a murder, I don't know that. We went down to the station and everything like that. They kept pulling him out, pulling me out. They were playing good cop, bad cop. You know, come on. So anyway, and I said, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to be back here. Don't be bothering me. There's nothing to say. You know, and I used to tell them, I said, we'll see you in the arena. That's what I used to call the courtroom. Coming up after the break, we'll see you in the arena. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Seven months after George Basmasian was found dead in the backseat of a stolen Mercury, the state of Rhode Island versus Gerald and Harold Tillinghast began. Here's what the Providence Journal said at the time. One brother, Jerry, is three years younger, but taller, bigger, and more outgoing. He's the man who many people fear, the man who had beaten the rap more than once, the man who went free after the bonded vault. The other brother, Harold, is the quiet one, the fey one, the man his lawyer called a character, the man who, one day, lifted his shirt to show the press gallery the Pink Panther tattooed on his stomach. Jerry says Harold had always been different, even as a kid. He was a character. I remember Harold would always go out and he'd play with the girls. So, my mother got mad at him one day. She put a dress on him, straight up. Send him out like that, figuring she'd, you know, deal with some boys, hang with some boys too and stuff like that. And didn't phase him a bit. He went right out there with the dress. It was funny. <laughs> funny as a bastard, yeah. Was he your favorite brother? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it sounds like it. Yeah, we did everything together. And that was the question facing the jury. 
did Jerry and Harold murder George Basmazian together? The prosecution relied on the testimony of the surveillance team that followed Basmazian the night he was murdered, Detective Vincent Vespia and FBI agent Phil Riley. The defense tried to make Vespia look like he was out to get Jerry from the beginning. For example, when Vespia found Basmazian's body, he never checked to see if he was alive, as procedure required. And when Jerry's defense team asked why, Vespia said, Well, look, uh, I... uh... I've investigated maybe five murders uh, that uh, I believe he, he affected, and he didn't leave any of those uh, people alive. So I took a calculated risk uh, that Basmajan was dead. I said, and, and you know something, I was right. He only had nine fucking bullets in his head, you know. <laughs> the defense argued that Harold hadn't been in the Mercury, and several witnesses testified that he was at Michael's lounge the entire night. During cross-examination, FBI agent Riley admitted that he saw Harold in the Mercury only in profile for just a few seconds, and he couldn't identify Harold's clothes or say whether or not he had a mustache. But Vespia was more certain. He said Harold wasn't there. Who who was there? I I saw Harold. But Jerry was also certain. Forget me. I'm going to claim innocence anyway, no matter what if I did or I didn't do it. There's no doubt in my mind, every cop that was involved, every judge, every prosecutor that came across that case knew he was innocent. The way the evidence was going, the way they had it going, I I swear to God, I thought it was going to be a split decision. It means one guilty, one not guilty. On August 11th, 1979, the verdict came back from a Providence Journal article that day. At about 2.20 p.m., the Tillinghasts were led into the courtroom in handcuffs. Harold looked grim, but Gerald smiled at his friends and relatives in the gallery. The brothers exchanged brief comments with their lawyers and shook hands with each other for good luck, just before the jury entered the room a minute later. The Tillinghasts sat immobile, their faces grim, as the verdict was announced. Jerry and Harold were both found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. It was a war. We, we considered it a war against organized crime. It was uh, us against them. Again, Detective Vincent Vespia. In those days, uh, prior to court decisions and best practices uh, that we talk about nowadays, we, because it was a crusade, we did some things that probably would be frowned upon legally today. But why do we do it? Because it was the way to win the battle. What was it like when they read the verdict? Can you explain what that felt like? Well, you're upset, you don't like it, but you try to maintain composure. I know Harold was sick, sick about it. Think about this. If the jury was wrong about Harold, like Jerry says, that means there was someone else in the Mercury that night, another guy in the passenger seat who pulled that trigger nine times. And if the jury was right about Jerry, then he could have saved his brother by giving up that other person. But guys like Jerry don't do that. 
Flipping on another wise guy would have meant breaking the code. So Jerry and Harold both headed to Rhode Island's Adult Correctional Institutions, or ACI. See, the first five years that I was in that bit, I was in denial, and not the river in Egypt. Yeah. Trust me. I was, uh, I didn't give a fuck. You know, if I'd assault an officer as well as an inmate, anybody, I didn't care. I was bitter, you know, because of my brother. Harold Tillinghast spent more than two decades in prison. Again, attorney Paul DeMeo. Every year Harold went up for a parole, I'd go up and say to the parole board, I'm here for the, you know, rehabilitation. He doesn't need it. He didn't do it, all right? So finally let him out after about 25 years. He's definitely innocent of that. Harold's health declined. He had advanced heart disease and was taking medication. But toward the end of his sentence, when he was out on parole, his condition took a turn for the worse. He got out. He wanted to go to the mall, the Providence Mall, to buy some jeans. My sister didn't want him to go out. She wanted him to stay home, but he was determined he wanted to go. And when he got right in front of Filene's, I think it was Filene's, he had the heart attack. And we talk about him all the time. You know, my theory is this. As long as you talk about them, they're in your heart and they're alive. We keep them alive. If you don't talk about anybody anymore, eventually it passes. The world changed while Jerry was behind bars. As the 70s stretched into the 80s, the federal government was cracking down on organized crime. Prison sentences were getting longer, and more and more mob guys started to rat, to flip. The code that Jerry sacrificed his brother for suddenly didn't mean as much. Bad thing is when you grow up with a code and you stick to it, then you see people that invented the code go the other way, you know, pisses you off. And then, in 2007, after almost 30 years in prison, Jerry got out. Mr. Tillinghast, can you tell us what you're thinking now? Fresh air? I just wanted to get in the car and go home. Enjoy the moment. State prosecutors and the state police say Jerry Tillinghast is one of Rhode Island's most notorious mob murderers. He was a feared street enforcer. Um, again, hopefully prison has mellowed him. Um, the reports that we have that he is. Mellow now, maybe, but a convicted murderer always. Today, Jerry Tillinghast is 70 years old. He lives in a nice suburban house on the outskirts of Providence. He became a Wiccan in prison, and there are books about magic on the shelves. He spends his time playing Dungeons and Dragons. He has a cat. And he says he no longer blames the cops for anything. Not for arresting Harold back in 1978, and not for putting both of them away for decades. Life's too short to hold grudges. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Listen, they do what they gotta do. I don't hold grudges against Finney or anybody. They're doing their job. If I put myself in a position to where I have to worry about the law, that's on me. Choices. I made a choice. My favorite word is choices. It should be everybody's in this fucking world. 
You make it, you own it. You reap the benefits, suffer the consequences. You made the choice. Be man enough or woman enough to take the pain as well as the gain. Hey, listeners, we're taking the next few weeks off for the holidays and to work on the rest of the season. But we'll be back on January 22nd with much more from Providence, Rhode Island, and this season of Crime Town. Crime Town is me, Zach Stewart Pontier, and Mark Smerling. We were produced by Drew Nellis, Austin Mitchell, and Mike Plunkett, with additional production by Laura Sim. We are edited by Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny. Fact-checking by Mick Rouse. This episode of Crime Town was mixed, sound designed, and scored by Matthew Boll. Our title track is Run to Your Mama by Goat. Our credit music this week is Into the Gray by Vanessa Blay. Original music by John Cusiak, John Ivins, Edwin, and Beanart. Our ad music is by Matthew Boll. Additional sound design by Ted Robinson at Silver Sound. Additional mixing by Martin Peralta and Enoch Kim. Our digital editor is Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our design director is Ale Lariu. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. But Alex, we wouldn't take you on a jaywalking expedition. This season of Crime Town is dedicated to the memory of Zachary Malinowski. We miss you, Bill. Shout out to Matt O'Connor for teaching us that the ACI is plural. Thanks to the Providence Journal, WPRI, Julia Haymans, Emily Wiedemann, Tim White, Dan Barry, Lisa Newby, Mary Murphy, Greg Malazzi, and everyone who shared their stories with us. For a full list of credits, visit our website at crimetownshow.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Crimetown and on Facebook and Instagram at Crimetownshow. And if you're enjoying Crime Town, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. Thanks. Providence is a special place, and we're honored to tell a part of its story. See you in a couple weeks. Was you guys drinking coffee? Yeah, I drank some coffee. Did you get sweet and low? Give him, a, give him a spoon. A spoon you can do. Okay. Oh, no, this will be like, whew, you're tough. You're tough. You're tough. You're not a good host, I gotta tell you. Not bad, though. No? That's salt. Is that salt? <laughs> <laughs> it's salt. Guys, but who wanna, puts on this kind of thing? You guys want to leave, but this is going to be messy. I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot of blood here in a minute. You guys want to leave? <laughs>